0: Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Kennst du Lululemon Wundertrain schon?
1: Das sind unsere Performance Shorts aus unserem Everlux-Material, das super schnell trocknet, damit du alles geben kannst und dabei immer cool bleibst. Außerdem ist sie super stretchig und macht alle deine Moves mit, damit du über deine Limits hinausgehen kannst. Lululemon
2: Wondertrain Shorts. Get into it auf lululemon.de. Hi, I'm Izzy Greenfield from Business Daily. We bring you important and interesting stories from the world of money and work. And we've been taking a deep dive into the music industry. It's worth $26 billion a year globally. And I've spoken to industry experts from around the world, from international pop stars and gospel groups to aspiring local artists to find out what it takes to make it in such a lucrative but exclusive industry. That's Business Daily from the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your BBC
3: podcasts. Hello there. It's finally happening. I'm James Gallagher. This is Discovery from the BBC and we're talking zombies.
2: Somewhere out west, they're working on a cure.
4: Was the fact that turn into a monster.
3: That's a clip from the TV drama The Last of Us. It's based on one of the best video games I've ever played. And in it, a fungus called cordyceps starts infecting people. It takes control of their bodies, zombifying them so that it can spread to yet more people. The result is a pandemic that collapses society. And yeah, I know what you're thinking. It sounds completely unbelievable. It could never be true. But Cordyceps fungus... Is real. It's known as the zombie fungus for the way it invades and takes over the minds of insects. Today on Discovery from the BBC, we're going to see if a fungal pandemic of any form could be possible. So let's start with this zombie fungus. It's the speciality of Dr Charissa de Becker, who's a microbiologist at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Sharissa, welcome. And I suppose the first thing I want to know is what happens when you're sat at home casually watching a fungal apocalypse play out in a TV drama, are you thinking, yeah, this is great, or is your head in your hands?
5: So in one way, as a fan of fiction like anyone else, I'm, I'm celebrating. On the other hand, as a scientist, I'm hoping that people, you know, don't go and interpret fungi the wrong way. It's a really interesting one, though, isn't it?
3: Because they haven't used a made up fungus as part of this. It's cordyceps. It's out there in the real world. And it's called zombie ants, isn't it?
5: It is called zombie ants, yeah. But don't think these are undead ants. Uh, It's just that. And species that get infected with these fungi, the fungus will make the insects wander around in a very confused way and eventually climb up the vegetation. The insects uh, latch on, and this is then where where the insect will get killed by the fungus. So it can use all that energy to uh, produce a stalk and a fruiting body. So kind of the, like the the mushroom of these type of fungi kind of emerges from behind the head to produce new spores and and spread to more ants
3: i first came across this Sharissa, in a bbc documentary uh, series planet earth with david attenborough have a listen to this
0: like something out of science fiction the fruiting
3: body of the cordyceps erupts from the ant's head it can take three weeks to grow and when finished the deadly spores will burst from its tip then any ant in the vicinity will be in
6: serious risk of
3: death just listening to that, and I, I remember watching it, it is the kind of things that horror movies are made of, isn't it?
5: It kind of is, and this is also what attracted me to it. So you see these bizarre little insect statues with projections growing out of them, which are the fungi.
3: Obviously, you know, that kind of thing has been part of the inspiration between this Last of Us series as well. But I suppose the big question is, does the science stack up that you can go from what happens to ants and is horrifying could that happen to people could these fungal species make the leap
5: well the very quick answer to that is is no so the first thing is our body temperatures our body temperature is is simply too high for most fungi to nicely settle and grow. And this is the same for this cordyceps. Of course, their, their nervous system is simpler than, than ours. So definitely uh, it would be easier to hijack the brain of an insect versus, versus our brain. Also their, their immune systems are very different from ours as well. So for this fungus to be able to jump from an insect to us and cause an infection is already a, a very big leap.
3: Dr. Sharisa Debecca there. And I'll be honest, it is a relief, isn't it, that we're going to dodge the zombie apocalypse? But let's be honest, we're not off the hook yet because there are more fungi, millions of species of them, and a few of them are becoming increasingly problematic. So I went to meet Dr. Neil Stone. He's the lead for fungal infections at the Hospital for Tropical Diseases in London, and he's at the front line of the fight against fungi.
1: I think we underestimate fungal infections at our peril, and I think we've already done that for too long and we are completely unprepared for dealing with a fungal pandemic. Yes, it's true, most fungal infections don't pass from person to person, so I think a fungal pandemic will take a slightly different form. The most worrying, I would say, for us at this point is something called Candida auris. This is a yeast in the candida uh, species, which are generally very common, but Candida auris itself was only discovered in 2009. The most important thing about it is that it's incredibly drug-resistant, the fact it's been called the first fungal superbug, uh, it's really worrying, and it could come to uh, become a major healthcare problem. In fact, the head of the fungal department at the CDC in Atlanta called it a creature from the Black Lagoon, which has bubbled up and is now everywhere. And I think that's a very good way of thinking about it. It's like a monster which has appeared only in the last 10, 15 years or so, but is now being found all over the world. So, if you have somebody who comes in with that, and there's
3: no drug you can use,
1: what do you do? It's extremely difficult. It seems very, very hard to stop transmission once it gets into a hospital setting. It seems to stick to surfaces, it's transmitted in intravenous lines, catheters, even blood pressure cuffs, which are being used patient to patient. And standard cleaning measures have proved ineffective to the point whole intensive care units had to be shut down. Most of the time, I'm pleased to say even Candida auris is susceptible to at least one of the antifungulations we have, but sometimes none at all. And this is a real problem. If it spreads into almost every hospital that we have patients at the moment, it could shut down entire healthcare systems. So even though the nature of the pandemic may be very different from what we're used to now with, for example, COVID, it could have a profound and massive impact internationally on healthcare. Fungal infections are slightly different in that, yes, most of these organisms occur in the environment. Yes, they do tend to affect only those who are immune suppressed. But at the same time, I think the pure volume of fungi in the environment is only going to increase. Between climate change, between international travel, the increasing number of cases, and their deep neglect in terms of treatments we have. This problem is big, it's growing, and it's only going to get bigger, and I think we ignore it at our peril. When I think
3: of fungus, I think of mushrooms when I go walking through the woods or something like that. You know, they're nature's great decomposers and recyclers. Is that what they're doing to the human body when they get
1: in? I think that's exactly right, and it's not very pleasant to think about, uh, somebody once said, that fungi are the interface organism between life and death. The WHO actually just uh, very recently released a list of what they call the fungal priority pathogens, where they've identified the top three in the, in the critical category are Candida auris, uh, and you will see an example of this in the laboratory, Aspergillus fumigatus, which is a common environmental mould but causes a very severe lung infections, and Cryptococcus neoformans, which causes devastating and life-threatening fungal meningitis.
3: Well, we heard Neil talking about Canada auris. I find it shocking to think how that has just come from nowhere in the space of a decade and a half. But let's have a look at another one he mentioned, Cryptococcus neoformins. Dr. Irina Druzhina from Kew Gardens explains where it comes from in the environment.
0: Cryptococcus neoformins can be found in soil and feed off dead organic matter, and it can also feed on bird droppings, or in the cities, it can be found in pigeon droppings the major feature of this fungus that makes it dangerous for humans is that they're so resistant to stress conditions that we know that it grows in their parts of the melted Chernobyl nuclear power plant and if I would be thinking about the plot for a TV series I would actually consider uh, this fungus because it certainly has affinity to human brain and can cause meningitis in humans.
2: Are we all set for the night? Yeah.
3: I've almost finished the lasagna. Ellie and Sid are enjoying married life now.
2: <laughs> the, cake <laughs> the cake didn't go oh, I know. Yeah.
3: But I I it was up. a very rocky start. Just days after their wedding, the fungus Cryptococcus neoformins, took hold in Ellie's body.
2: So I remember packing up, for our wedding. That's the last thing I remember. Thankfully, I remember the wedding, which there were concerns that I might not. And then two days after the wedding, we were flying to Costa Rica. But I don't remember that. So
4: Costa Rica was the luxury honeymoon? Yeah, exactly. Five days in Costa Rica along the beaches there. And then we went to an off-grid island. Ellie started getting headaches. And then we thought maybe it's, you know, a bit of the sun. She just had a lot of water. Started feeling better in a couple Mm -hmm. of hours. And the next day, we went snorkeling in the morning. But then once we came back, she felt like a bit nauseous, a bit dizzy. And then she started like throwing up. There was only two people in this whole island, Um, the hotel owners. She like asked Ellie to go into the shower. And that's my
2: final, final memory, really. My final memory is being like put into the shower and her just saying you're overheating.
4: And so did you think it was just the heat too? At that point, I kind of thought it was. While Ellie, at that point, she knew something was wrong. She was like, I need to go to the doctor. Basically, the hotel owners were like, there are no doctors here. And we would need to take a boat. Ellie was becoming less responsive. She was having, like, jerk-like motions, full-blown seizures on the bed. And I've never seen something... um, yeah, more, like, horrifying and especially feeling so helpless.
2: People started to take it seriously then, as you've told me. <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah, exactly. And, like, we had to actually carry Ellie in a hammock while she was still having the seizures to the boat and then take, like, a 30-minute boat ride. Yeah. Sid, it sounds terrifying. And Ellie, feels like it's probably, probably glad you can't remember it.
2: Yeah, it feels very weird that this happened to my body.
4: I was just very scared and... When we got there like they were they were phenomenal i mean i, I didn't understand speak the language, and I mean, there was no cue and immediately she was seen as a priority. They initially suspected it's like hyponatremia, so basically low sodium levels, then that could lead to things like seizures, diarrhea, but they said they also saw there was like an infection because the white blood cells were elevated, so they were like, okay, we need to move to the next." place because Eddie needs to have intubation support in her breathing. And when did they realise that it was a fungal infection that was the problem? They did a CT scan, they saw swelling um, in the brain, and they did a full like, meningitis panel array test. The PCR said like cryptococcus like positive. So that's when they figured out that it's a fungal meningitis. Crikey. said, what did you think when you found out it was fungal meningitis well, i mean I, I was very confused the family had flew flew over and his family and my best friend as well we saw that it mainly affects people with immunity that's like compromised and um that didn't quite make sense because andy had a very good immunity as far as we know that but they started treating her and then while she was in icu she was stable and that was the important thing so that means it was she was responding to the treatment so that's why we were like okay probably is this Mm. and ellie when did you start to come around
2: i was on the ventilator for 12 days um so they started to wake me up that was traumatic because i didn't know where i was my arms were strapped down by my side so i just remember screaming was very confused i had a lot of delusions i thought we talked a lot about having kids on the honeymoon and stuff and i thought we did have three triplets but i finally did come to like realize that that wasn't (laughs) true i was relieved. I also didn't trust Sid. I thought he'd like gambled our money away. So the first thing I said to him was, it's over. And for a couple of days, just really didn't trust Sid at all. But gradually kind of started to understand what was going on and very thankful to be alive, but also not really understanding the seriousness of what happened and still felt like I'd be able to walk fine. And and I couldn't. I'd lost about 25% of my muscle mass. I couldn't stand anymore. So I was having to do physio and was in hospital for about I think, seven days after waking up, which is pretty quick. <laughs> and, yeah, flew home. And the physical side of recovery was straightforward, really. But the mental side was, yeah, catastrophic, really. Um, as soon as we got back, I think the adrenaline kind of subsided and the PTSD, like, I mean, I just, you know, you don't think you're going to go on your honeymoon and almost die.
3: Had you ever really thought that fungal infections could do
2: this? Never. No? <laughs> no. No
3: i wish you a long and happy marriage both of you
2: thank you thanks so much this was good to do for me as well quite cathartic
3: <clears throat> ellie i want you to imagine something for me mm-hmm. take a pregnancy test <laughs> you go for the first ultrasound scan and they go it's triplets."
2: <laughs> oh um, my tone
3: <laughs> now, neil we've just heard from one of your patients ellie that is some story
1: it is an incredible story and actually it's very scary and frightening experience and People think of meningitis usually as being caused by bacteria, but actually in many parts of Africa, for example, the most common form of meningitis is a fungal meningitis caused by cryptococcus. And most people with a healthy immune system control the infection there and then and are probably never aware they were even exposed to it. In patients with weakened immune systems in particular, for example, those patients who have advanced HIV, it can actually disseminate and spread around the body and actually enter the nervous system and cause a very devastating form of meningitis.
3: Just the yeast growing...
1: That's the yeast growing in, in the, the, brain or the brain and the spinal fluid, yeah. What Ellie had was this fungal infection, cryptococcal meningitis, which has got a high mortality and can be absolutely life-threatening, although in her particular case there was no known immune suppression, and we do know there are cases where this can happen to people who are apparently otherwise healthy. It's a big lesson
3: in that case, isn't it?
1: I think there's a lesson that we shouldn't underestimate these. It is rare, I would... Uh, uh, remind people of that but it's something that uh, we are increasingly seeing and, and delighted that she's come through as well now.
3: I found it quite sobering to be honest because like it's very easy to dismiss fungal infections because if someone goes fungal infection the first thing that comes to my mind is something like athlete's foot something that you, you know and actually we're talking about something that can be life or death.
1: Absolutely and I think that's something that I battle people think of it as something trivial or superficial or unimportant or vaguely embarrassing. Whereas, in fact, around the world, they're responsible for more deaths than something like malaria, for example, which I think more people would be aware of. More deaths than malaria? Fungal infection or invasive fungal infection are estimated to cause almost three times as number of deaths every year as malaria. How
3: we ended up in a place where we're
1: not more worried about it than we are? The exact
3: reasons why
1: that is, is, is to me somewhat of a mystery. Maybe some kind of deep cultural relationship with fungi, that it's something odd and bizarre that people don't really want to pay attention to. As a result, we've had a lack of investment and a lack of treatments available. We actually only have three classes of antifungal drugs we can use compared to, for example, antibacterial agents and now antiviral agents where there are dozens. What
3: got you into fungus? Because as you say, most people go, meh.
1: I'm often asked that question and I was interested in HIV in particular and I spent some time in Malawi in Southern Africa. And I'd never heard of cryptococcal meningitis, and all of a sudden I was seeing cases of it every single day. I started to make connections with others in the field, and uh, it grew from there.
7: So we're going to go through to the culture laboratory. So this is where we do most of our fungal culture. Um, The reason we're behind a couple of locked doors is fungi produce spores. So everyone thinks that fungi are going to invade the world because they produce spores, but they really don't. They're quite nice and friendly. So just pass through this door...
3: We need to wear a lab coat in there? Uh, you're
7: all right. We're okay, because we're just off Hello, my name is Rebecca, Rebecca Gorton. I'm a clinical scientist at Health Services Laboratories specialising in fungal infection.
3: So you've got a row of petri dishes for me, each growing something yeah. yucky inside them. I
7: do. So we've got some nice chromogenic media. And chroma is lovely because it makes things go a nice colour. And actually what you can see growing here, and I won't take the lid off is a Candida auris culture.
3: I've heard of that one.
7: Yes, Candida auris is our superbug Can I have a look? Yeah, of course you can. Um, just don't touch it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I don't want to stick my face in it either.
7: Um, so it's just a white waxy colony, and that's a standard Candida culture.
3: Tiny little white blobs, and I'm getting a really... Did so um, I just get a yeasty waft then?
7: You did, yeah. it smells. Like reminding me of bacon. A brewery, yeah, or bacon, yeah. <laughs> but actually, what's really important about Candida auris is it is is multi-drug resistant, and we just look to see if the candida grows in the presence of the, of drug. the different drugs yeah. yeah, and give the clinicians advice on how to manage.
3: Okay, so it's invaluable work being able to tease the when you're dealing with a superpower. Yeah. What so are these two?
7: Yeah, so these are in bags, is so that so because it, they're yeah, even worse? Yeah, these are the ones that make the spores. So candida okay. is right. relatively quick, grows within 24 to 48 hours and we can quickly do something. In contrast, the other group of fungi are filamentous fungi, Stuff that grows out in the environment in the soil, but it's also the stuff that can grow in patients' lungs when they breathe the spores in. So, what I've got for you here are two typical examples of fungi that we isolate. So, I'm
3: getting moldy bread fibers, yeah, moldy those. bread.
7: So, Aspergillus fumigatus is the first colony, it's this lovely navy blue color with a lovely white edge, and this is the one that makes your bread go blue. It grows within three to five days, so you know, it's not quick. So, it can take a while to diagnose these infections. So, that's Aspergillus. And then the second culture that I'm showing you is slightly more scary to look at. Um, and this is called a mucoraceous fungus. We call oh, them. You have a, all the
3: great words in Yeah, we do. Fungal research, um, don't you?
7: It's called a lid lifter. Um, and the reason it's a lid lifter is on the agar plate. Don't worry, I'm going to take the lid off. You will not come to any harm. Um, I've
3: unconsciously backed away.
7: <laughs> <laughs> it grows so quickly. This is within 24 hours, and it fills the agar plate, that it can lift the lid off the plate. We okay, so that's call them a super-fast-growing one, yeah. yeah. They're the fungus that when you have a piece of fruit and the next day it's turned to mush, that's because it's, it's had a mucor fungus inside of it. And this is a really serious infection in the wrong patient. So if you have an immunocompromised patient who ends up with an infection, um, and typically we see this in patients who are very sick, then this grows as quick in their tissues so you That's can terrifying. see how quickly that that could progress. It's very rare. I don't want everyone to be scared that they're going to get a mucor infection.
1: I should say we see a case of this, we call it mucormycosis, uh, which is a very rapidly growing fungus, which is present everywhere in the environment. It's absolutely harmless to most people, but in the right patient setting for it, usually a patient with poorly controlled diabetes or undergoing cancer chemotherapy, it can start to spread very quickly and develop over a matter of hours and days in the laboratory, overnight growth can actually cause it to lift the lid off the agar plate. If you can imagine in a patient who is susceptible, it can actually grow as rapidly as that in the patient's tissues. For example, the face or the eyes and even the brain and is often fatal and those who do survive are often left with severe facial disfigurement. And we have very few tools to deal with this. So we're in desperate need of new drugs to treat it and new diagnostics to actually pick this up quicker. And I think anyone who's seen a case of that uh, won't forget it quickly. Quite horrifying
3: to think of that happening to somebody it's, you know or to anybody really.
1: It's devastating and it's, it's something fortunately we see uh, only a handful of times per year. It is on the increase, however, for example, in India, with the COVID pandemic, there was an explosion of these cases.
3: Suddenly, it was headlines everywhere.
1: That's right. That's something which the media actually called black fungus. This probably wasn't as a result of the COVID virus itself, but because a lot of patients with COVID were taking large doses of steroids, which is a risk factor, diabetes is extremely common in India, and a lot of these patients had poorly controlled diabetes. And there was a huge number of cases there following one of these COVID waves.
3: Another example there of just where the opportunity is there, the fungus is just waiting.
1: Absolutely, and that's why we call these opportunistic pathogens. Most of the time, they don't cause any problems, but when they find the right patient or the wrong patient, depending on how you look at it, they can cause devastating disease. Most fungal infections do affect those with weakened immune systems. Now, there are more people with uh, suppressed immune systems than ever before. That's partly for a very good reason, is that treatments for previously almost universally fatal diseases, such as leukaemia, for example. There are now very sophisticated treatments which are keeping people alive longer, which is obviously great, but in order to do so, these patients are being more heavily immunosuppressed and for longer than ever before. So the pool of susceptible people to these infections is ever-growing.
3: The horrible things fungi can do to our bodies is quite chilling, isn't it? In a moment, we're going to hear from Caroline. She had an aspergillus infection in her lungs, and that's another of those fungi that are causing concern. But first, Dr. Irina Jujina explains where it comes from.
0: Potentially, potentially dangerous aspergillus are They are everywhere. Because these fungi, they uh, live in uh, dead organic matter, and particularly in forest soil, forest litter, and they are so abundant that... Every one of us daily inhales maybe hundreds of spores of this fungus, and even if we stay indoor.
3: So how do they end up everywhere if they're normally kind of like in the forests?
0: These are molds. They produce really vast number of spores. The spores are very, very small. And they, they, we, we bring them every time we enter. We bring some air with us, like like in this studio.
3: So Caroline, welcome to Discovery on the BBC. Can you tell me what happened when you had a fungal infection?
6: I had already got shortness of breath as a result of um, asthma and then as a result of a, a heart disease. So when I then got a further cough, everybody thought it was, oh, it was infection probably or the heart. I coughed all night. and Nobody ever thinks of fungus straight away. Um, so it took a long time to diagnose. In fact, I started coughing up phlegm with a little bit of fine black threads in it and eventually it came back with a diagnosis of aspergillus and i being admitted to hospital because I was very sick then. What I had was complications from the steroids that I was on for my heart disease. And also before that, I had been taking tablets that reduced my immunity for my arthritis. Talking to my infectious diseases consultant, he says it's quite likely that those black threads were the black threads of the, the fungus. I had lumps in my lung with holes in them containing fluid, and they thought it was cancer. And during that time, I'd been in hospital two times, and nobody had really picked it up. So it was a difficult diagnosis, and I was on treatment for 12 months. Oh, that took a, a while st- to clear up. Oh, it does take a long time to clear up, and it's, um, you're never quite sure if it's completely gone. I, like many other people, have to stay on tablets that reduce your immunity, it makes it more likely that it might come back. Caroline, thank you so much for coming on the programme.
1: You're welcome. Again, like most of these, that's an environmental organism. Aspergillus is all around us. We're probably breathing it in right now, in fact. For most people, it doesn't cause any problems. But if you have risk factors for disease, for example, if you have damaged lungs from an underlying lung condition or you're on immunosuppressive therapy, including, for example, long-term steroid use for another condition, it makes you vulnerable to actually getting disease with Aspergillus. And Aspergillus particularly likes their lungs as a place to cause disease because that's the point of entry when you breathe in spores. And it can cause a, a chronic kind of lung infection and symptoms can include a chronic cough, coughing up blood. We can actually see if we do a CT scan of the chest, we will see lesions there. And that's a, how the disease manifests itself when this environmental fungus... Encounters a person who is susceptible to infection. Neil, just thinking into the future, are there new antifungal drugs on the horizon? Is the work being done? The good news is that after decades of neglect, there finally is some progress with new antifungal drugs. That I'm very hopeful within the next five to ten years, we'll have a vastly greater array to deal with some of these infections. We're on the cusp of some really positive change. Did treating all of these cases, Neil, put you off
3: eating mushrooms?
1: Actually, I have to say I love mushrooms. I think they're one of the most delicious foods and. Most mushrooms that we eat cause no disease whatsoever. One of the things I've learned that actually fungal diseases are only a small part of what the fungal kingdom does for us.
3: Neil, thank you so much for having me in. You're welcome. Thanks to my producer, Erica Wright, and thanks to you for joining me, James Gallagher, on Discovery for the BBC for an exploration of the world of deadly fungi. It looks like we're going to be spared the zombie fungus apocalypse. Words, I'll be honest, I never thought I'd say out loud, but there you go. But there are still plenty of species of fungus we need to keep an eye on. In
1: 2011... Japan's Fukushima nuclear power plant was struck by a tsunami. The future of Japan was balanced on a knife edge.
5: We are in a nuclear emergency.
1: But how did the disaster happen? And could it have been prevented? We are extremely concerned that an earthquake could give rise to a tsunami of up to 40 meters. Fukushima. An original seven-part audio drama series from the BBC World Service, telling the story of how the disaster unfolded, and of those living with its aftermath. This old proud town has been erased from the world. Search for Fukushima wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Kennst du and Wundertrain schon? Das sind unsere Performance Shorts aus unserem Everlux-Material, das super schnell trocknet, damit du alles geben kannst und dabei immer cool bleibst. Außerdem ist sie super stretchig und macht alle deine Moves mit, damit du über deine Limits hinausgehen kannst. Lululemon Wundertrain Shorts. Get into
5: it auf lululemon.de